0: So, hello and welcome to our listeners to this fourth N4D podcast in the series on the politics of ending malnutrition, a pretty weighty subject, hopefully interesting for everybody. I'm joined as usual by my two co-directors in N4D, Chris Leather and Jeremy Shohan.
1: Hi. Hello, everybody.
0: Chris is sitting over in Rio de Janeiro, which we're not at all jealous about. Jeremy in North London. I'm in uh, Leafy Surrey in England. And most importantly, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our guest today, Mr. Sean Baker. Do you want to say hello, Sean?
2: Hello, everyone. A great pleasure to be here. I'm calling in from Abuja, Nigeria. I'm based in Dakar, Senegal, but I'm here this week uh, working with our our team here in Nigeria.
0: Great. Thank you, Sean. And thanks so much for carving out some time to become our fourth guest. And we're very excited to have this conversation with you over the next uh, half hour or hour. I wanted to perhaps say a little bit without wishing to embarrass you, Sean, uh, about who you are. Some people listening to this podcast, some of our listeners will know you if they're coming from the public health and nutrition community, but we also have listeners who aren't well known to us, let's say, but are interested in the subject of nutrition or malnutrition specifically. So Sean has, without giving your age away, Sean, has many decades of experience in our sector for want of a better word and it's fair to say for us thinking about you Sean and in the way that we three know you some of us better than others you've occupied some uh, really major leadership roles in our sector in the nutrition world and what's very interesting I think in thinking about our conversation today is that you've worn not not just occupying senior leadership roles, but also you've worn so many hats. So you've sat in some of the most important donor organizations, so the U.S. Government uh, Aid and Development Organization in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, both of which are significant donors in their own right. But you've also come very much from... Uh, a background with international non-government organization. So at the moment, you're wearing that hat again with Helen Keller International, where you occupy uh, a senior leadership role. Uh, I think you also have quite an illustrious academic career. Um, You have a strong public health background. And when we think about some of the most important global initiatives uh, that support improvements in nutrition at the moment. You've also sat in positions there, either in facilitation or in chairing, um, different mechanisms. So I'm thinking here about the scaling up nutrition movement. Some people refer to it as the Sun Movement, uh, the Global Nutrition Report uh, in your capacity there, and the Allied Accountability Framework. So you've really, you've really had such an amazing career. And I think what's interesting from our perspective is that you've seen the nutrition world from all those different perspectives. So be it from the donor perspective, be it from an international non-government perspective, academia, from different global mechanisms. And perhaps most importantly, you've sat in so many at so many country level uh, capacities and I think I first came across you when you were engaged in a regional role I think correct me if I'm wrong at some kind of nutrition technical working group of ECOWAS the uh, economic um, forum for West Africa so I think that's my first memory of you actually Sean was coming across you in that capacity quite some time ago so yeah the ECOWAS nutrition forum and Yes, it actually is. is. Uh,
2: there, there, I, my last time in Abuja was in April of this year when uh, the nutrition forum of the Economic Community of West African States took place in person after a uh, pause, pandemic imposed pause and, and yeah. it was just wonderful to be back at that after uh, a couple of decades of engagement. It
0: was yeah, really homecoming
2: exactly. really and, inspi- and inspiring, yes.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I hope I haven't embarrassed you, but for us sitting in N4D and when we launched our first podcast in this series, we promised our listeners we were going to talk to people that we regard as having significant leadership roles. And that doesn't necessarily mean just sitting in senior positions because people can be in a leadership role sitting you know, in districts or sub-regions of countries and be significantly leading uh, on tackling different forms of malnutrition. But you have listened to the previous podcast and you'll know that we're juggling between people sitting in global roles and people sitting in country roles to try and get as broad a perspective as possible. But for us, we do regard you as one of those people that inspires us and has brought so much to the nutrition to the nutrition world and continue to do so in your current capacity back in Helen Keller International. But maybe to get us going, um, other than to say welcome again, Sean, and to thank you for joining us, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your life journey, like where you come from to be where you are now, a little bit about who you are, where you grew up, And something we like to hear, because I always slightly struggle with this when people ask, "Well, what do you do?" and "How do you describe your job?" What do you say? (laughs) So over to you, Sean.
2: Well, first of all, thank you for that really generous introduction and for inviting me on this podcast. Um, In summary, I would say I'm a repurposed marine biologist. Uh, I grew up in uh, rural northwest Pennsylvania in the U.S. and Often people outside the U.S., they see Pennsylvania, they think of an East Coast, but uh, where I grew up is much more Midwest culture and was always fascinated by biology and uh, also fascinated by marine biology, oddly enough, even though I had never seen an ocean until I was 15 years old. And after high school, I went to the University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida to study marine science and biology. But I had also had this idea in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a Peace Corps volunteer. And um, I had assumed Peace Corps would be this little two-year hiatus, and then I would go back to this brilliant career onward to be the next Jacques Cousteau. Mm -hmm. And here, about 40 years later, that hiatus has continued um and because as a peace corps volunteer i was posted in what was then zaire now uh, democratic republic of congo and i was teaching biology and chemistry in an agricultural technical high school and as volunteers we were supposed to do summer projects when there was the the break for the, the long holiday in the middle of the year and i worked with um Uh, the district hospital and local missionaries to do what were then called well baby clinics, basically growth monitoring and promotion. Mm. And you see how things can really have a long-reaching impact that basically converted me to public health uh, nutrition. And I just feel incredibly blessed that I fell into something almost by accident so early in my career that, you know, became my passion and my life's work. Mm. Uh, So that's that's how I started and then have then continued working in public health more broadly with a strong focus on nutrition in most of my positions. Mm-hmm. Um, that that sub-question you snuck in there about how you describe what you do, um, <laughs> you know, it's in most things in life, what you need, you need to know your audience. Because I was struggling with this and I always struggle, I think, as many of us do. And... So I guess the first thing is it's just understand of sort of gauge what is the degree of interest of the person who is asking that. Sometimes it's sort of just a polite inquiry. But often, and often very surprisingly, I have found it's an entry point to start talking about um, how transformational the work on nutrition is. And then as I'm back in this role at Helen Keller National, how transformational also the work we do on elimination of neglected tropical diseases and providing better um, better eye, eye health care um and in many ways you know at the end of the day uh nutrition is fundamental to all of us and uh you i you you can often find a way to connect almost anybody to the nutrition work that we have all been engaged in and so um, I don't have a standard response, uh, but I always try to use it as an entry point to proselytise about the transformational power and life-saving power of good nutrition.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I I, think we all struggle with answering that, but that's a good way of thinking about it. Think about why are they asking in the first place and um, how, how genuinely interested might they be in a more complex response? But, Sean, tell us a little bit about... I mean, obviously you had that moment doing community-based growth promotion. And I can remember doing that actually way back in Zambia in the 80s, thinking this is a great idea. Get out there and measure kids in the community and, you know, try and figure out who's vulnerable, who's at risk and look at the community mechanisms in place to support them. So I can see that. But in terms of your journey professionally, what would you say has been key motivations or inspirations for you is it people places you know what spurred you what spurred you on and kept you going kept you motivated in this career that you had and and continue to have in nutrition and public health
2: I mean it's always people and and places I find them indistinguishable in many ways and if I would even go back to that origin story, I mean, there is um, I mean, you you can you can have some some experience that just leave marks on you for your entire life. Uh, one of them was in that the, the village where I was living my third year is because I I extended a third year to work on a public health program, a public health nutrition program. Um, and during that came across this couple who had had um, had a very sickly child. Uh, it, I mean, I was not trained at that point. It was very unclear what the cause of the frail nature of this boy was. Uh, and they had lost many children before. This This was their only surviving child, and they were really trying to do everything, coming to the growth monitoring promotion programs to try to get uh, care for him and counseling on feeding him. And early one morning, the mom showed up on my doorstep, and in fact, the child died in front of me, but that marked me. And I think in many ways that is always my my anchor point of how can we avoid these tragedies, both being incredibly uh, humbled by the degree to which those parents were striving to get care for their child, uh, the incredible suffering they were going through and how these things just should not happen. Uh, it also, um, because as I was thinking of how do I move from marine biology to what, you know, to something more health nutrition related, of course, one of the ideas going across my mind was would I be a direct practitioner, uh, go into nursing school or medical school. But that was also an occasion where I understood that um, to be that direct service provider requires a certain uh, psychological makeup of being able to create a healthy distance between yourself and the direct provider that I just I, I just was not capable of having and uh, learned more about public health as an alternative in public health nutrition and so that really um, That that really, I think, remains a centerpiece of what my motivation is. I think, as we were speaking a bit earlier in the warm-up here, uh, it's one of the things I'm just reveling in, being back living in West Africa, being back in a non-governmental organization where I have a a great deal of contact directly with people who are trying to change the lives of, of people who are excluded and directly engaging so much with the people we serve. And that's just a constant source of inspiration and motivation.
0: Mm, I can imagine. And so in your job with Helen Keller International, Sean, I I know that you have a very senior role. And so a busy job, probably more hours than you care to admit. But what do you do when you're not Wearing Helen Keller international hat, like what is it? I can tell you a bit about my two co colleagues here. Jeremy is a jazz musician, a very good one, even though I personally am not that into jazz. Um, he keeps trying to educate me, and Chris is really into rowing. Um, so I think that's what keeps them a little bit sane when they're not doing a busy day, day job. So, what about you? What's your, what's, what, what how do you let off steam or? What's your other, what are your other passions in life
2: beyond Yeah, the, yeah. other yeah. passions in life, and some of them come together with nutrition. I love, you know, spending time with my kids and my grandchildren. Uh, yeah. some, some of my colleagues say that I have used them as my own uh, do-it-yourself experiments on what good nutrition can do, but it is truly miraculous <laughs> when you feed kids well, they just grow. It's amazing. Yeah.
1: Uh,
2: I am a voracious reader of a whole range of things. I also, perhaps a bit oddly, uh, given that I have absolutely no musical talent, uh, am a great opera fanatic, uh, I often see it as a metaphor for my role in doing things, because I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't play an instrument, uh, Mm -hmm. I can't paint scenery, but I am good about connecting dots and keeping lots of moving things coming together and seeing how it all fits together. So I I do love opera. Yeah. And then I also uh, am quite an avid birder, a bird watcher. Uh, and I've, I quip to my nutrition friends who query why I'm so interested in birding, I say it's also important to nourish the soul. And the lovely thing about birding is that you can do it absolutely everywhere and it gets you in touch with nature no matter where you're where you're visiting, for example. Here I am in the capital of Nigeria going out every morning at the hotel and, what, and seeing birds. It just immediately connects you to a part of your environment that otherwise you might not get in touch with.
0: Mm, interesting. You sound, I mean... <laughs> I, I don't have any talents either, actually, in terms of music or painting or but I love opera similarly, and anything to do with nature. I'm mad about nature, whether it's birds, whether it's butterflies, whether it's plants, flowers, you name insects, worms. I really love worms. So interesting. It's whatever fills you up, I guess. But let's move on and. Uh, I'm going to let Jeremy maybe uh, kick off with the next. Jeremy or Chris, do you want to jump in?
3: It's been great, Sean, to be learning more about your your backstory and your interests uh, and how you've got to where you are today. Um, We've talked quite a bit in the past and always had very serious conversations around nutrition and how does the global system better support countries, um, and that is indeed, what I'm going to bring us back to discuss now. Uh, And in these podcast discussions, often we're focusing in on the challenges and practical solutions to those challenges that constrain progress. And we'll definitely come to that in a while. But we wanted first to hear from you about positive stories, success stories from any countries, different countries that you've been working in or supporting that have really made progress in tackling nutrition bringing rates of nutrition down uh, over the last few years and what you consider to have been the ingredients for those successes. So let me hand over straight back to you so you can give us some inspirational success stories.
2: Thanks Chris and thanks for that question because I do think in our field uh, it's so easy to cast a grim, uh, self-defeating narrative that it's complex, it's hard to get traction, you can't do anything. And I think it is important to also truly document and celebrate successes, not to sugarcoat the challenges, but also not to hide successes under a bushel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I was just looking at uh, statistics of some countries' we work in, uh, that I've worked in in my other roles of, that are incredibly dramatic when you step back despite all the challenges. So Nepal in 1995, stunting rates among kids were over 68%. Uh, The latest estimate from 2021 is down to 24.8%. Bangladesh, a similar trajectory, something like 65.8% in 95 down to 28% in 2019. Uh, closer to where I live, um, in Senegal, stunting rates in 2019 are down to around 17.9%. Uh, the, the baseline going back into the 90s was not nearly as bad as uh, South Asia, but still around 34-35%. Uh, So, if you look at the broad strokes, there are some countries that have actually, without massive economic growth, have made some pretty significant changes in one of the hardest indicators to move on nutrition. And then if you look at more specific interventions, uh, you, again, have often unheralded success, Uh, iodine deficiency in 1993, it was estimated that 113 countries had iodine deficiency of public health importance. In 2021, that was down to 21. Dramatic changes. Then, when you move to you know more less national level, I've just some some things that I've come across recently and been directly involved with. One of the programs we had Helen Keller were supporting in Senegal through funding from USAID. It was called the Kawalar Program. And over a four-year period in a pretty significant project area, moved exclusive breastfeeding rates from around 21% to almost 59%. So, you know, almost a three-fold increase. And then again, one of those indicators that is almost the most difficult to move, which is minimal acceptable diet, uh, so the quality of diet for that critical period between six and 23 months, where globally we've made such little progress across low and middle income countries it's about 19 percent of kids only 19 yes 19 19 who get a minimum acceptable diet Uh, so we're obviously not nourishing our kids but you know through this in a four-year time frame moved it from 3.8 percent so less than four percent to over 23 percent so again almost a six-fold increase and then you know helen keller has been incredibly associated with vitamin a supplementation and other means of fighting vitamin a deficiency for since the 1970s and during the pandemic across the globe these programs really took a huge hit during the lockdown period and here sitting in nigeria just i was hearing a story from my colleagues about one state we support nasawara state which was the first state in Nigeria to restart vitamin A supplementation immediately as lockdowns were lifted but then all did all these adaptations to make sure supplements could be delivered with minimizing risks of transmission and out of the gates the state got a coverage rate for vitamin A of 91%. So really some you know some remarkable success stories both looking at the big picture national level success and then you know or localized or intervention-specific successes that I think we often overlook. And if I would try to boil it down of what would be the key elements, what's the through line in all of those, I would start by focus. Uh, I think in all cases, there's a very purposefulness in trying to get things to change. There is also been sustained financing uh, often those cases that I cite that financing has been from external resources so though in some cases we've seen increased uh, domestic resources going to the programs uh, capacity to deliver and I would underscore I think in that capacity to deliver uh, a lot of that has been on the backs of community health workers uh, which go under many appellations, for example, in Nepal, they're called uh, female community health volunteers. But that frontline workforce, is really in direct contact with the populations who need services. And then uh, the fourth ingredient is uh, probably tenacity or that long-term commitment, because none of these successes come as flash in the pans. They are, they need, people, institutions who are digging in, committing to get things done. Uh, so there, there is a lot of success out there. We have a body of evidence that shows that indeed in nutrition, impact at scale is possible. And therefore, it makes the lack of going even further even more unacceptable. Thanks, okay. uh, Sean, for that. And thanks for highlighting
3: some of those big picture Areas of progress as, some of, as well as some of the more localized ones. It triggers a range of questions. Um, I, I'm interested to know where, in terms of which sectors in different countries you think have contributed to, to some of that progress. But actually, the, the main question that came to mind was around who has driven that progress. You talked about focus, purposefulness. Um, sustained financing. And clearly, people have been advocating for and driving that sustained f- financing. And you talked about tenacity as well. So I'm just really interested. Who are who are the people, who are the institutions in some of these countries that have been driving those this progress? And how have they gone about that? Do you
2: have any specific examples you can give around that? I think that's an important question. It's one thing that I have struggled with in a way of And it goes to where we actually started off this podcast of demonstrating that everyone can and should lead from where they are. Uh, Because if you unpack this, I think sometimes in nutrition, perhaps we're waiting for this brilliant leader, a president who will say, this is my absolute priority or prime minister and everything will change. And, of course, when we do have leaders like that, it's great. But I guess what I take away is that network of deeply committed technical people who can bridge the technical political spectrum and keep things going no matter what and figure out how to get things done. Because you look at some of these successes, for example, it's striking the success in the success Nepal. Uh, you know, that was also through a period of time of incredible internal strife, uh, some of the most rampant uh, decentralization and federalism. Uh, but there seemed to be a steady layer of technocrats, both in government and in development partners that want to keep it going. You see specific causes like vitamin A supplementation where, There was initially incredible leadership in the US government uh, from, at the the time, Marty J. Foreman, who invested enormously out of the Bureau of of USAID and the background research that linked vitamin A deficiency to excess mortality and therefore supplementation to saving lives. Uh, USAID, through, in fact, also advocacy with appropriators of Congress. Had dedicated lydines for vitamin A supplementation. Then the Canadian government, now for decades, have been a stalwart of supporting vitamin A supplementation around the ro- around the globe. And then institutions like uh, my own, Nutrition International, deeply committed to to delivering that solution at scale. So sometimes it's driven that way, um, but. As I was pondering that question, while it clearly requires leadership and tenacity, there is not one model I'm seeing across these these, uh, successes. Uh, But I think if there is one takeaway, it's that at the end of the day, it's people who are committed to the cause, who are willing to drive the cause from no matter where they are sitting. Great.
3: Thanks, uh, Sean. Jeremy, I could hear you wanting to come in a bit earlier.
1: Over to you. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Um, yes. So uh, I mean, I, in a way, the next question—and and have to be open here—we, we, you know, we we uh, bandied around questions between us, Sean, before this podcast. So I know you thought carefully, very carefully about um, everything we're we're asking you. Um, the, the, the next question, which is about common challenges holding back progress in, in tackling malnutrition at country level uh in a way in a way you've answered those questions by by talking about um lack of purposefulness lack of sustainable financing capacity to deliver lack of tenacity um the the question we have i guess is how how can these issues be overcome and it, i suppose uh, uh, a sequitur from that then is if we know what these constraints are, why haven't we been able to overcome them as yet? Um and and how what how realistic is it to expect to be able to overcome them? What's your level of optimism?
2: I have trained to be an optimist. Uh I work for an organization that leads with optimism, as you can imagine, giving our co-founder, Melling Keller the simple solution or i guess the simple answer to my mind is political will. we we know the magnitude of the problem we know it better every day we know what to do the high impact solutions the health food social protection systems we know what how we can go to scale and what it costs to go to scale and we also see evidence every day of the devastating cost of inaction so I do think we are in a situation where, while we technical people uh, still have roles to play, uh, the persistence of malnutrition is a political choice. And to truly get to the next level of success, we need to do even more to position this as a political non-negotiable. And why is that not the case? I'm um, trying to read your mind of what's the follow-up question. Um, I, for a period of time, had a parallel life on the technical review panel of the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. And I was astounded and always am amazed by particularly the HIV community uh, who, you know, you had people directly affected by the disease who were scaling walls of parliament saying this shall not pass. Unfortunately, the people at risk of malnutrition, we don't have malnourished moms and malnourished kids who can take the streets and demand action. And so I do think the most fundamental reason that it's not gotten the political impetus it has to to truly drive the level of sustained investment is that it affects the people who are most excluded from the table. And we I don't have magical solutions about how we change that dynamic. You know, again, I do think we see we see more than glimmers of hope. I think we have see pools, even mm. like large oases of hope, of you know, civil society getting much local civil society particularly getting much more engaged and demanding of decision makers to take action. Sometimes you have enlightened decision makers who connect all the dots. I was uh, just a few weeks ago in Burkina Faso, which, of course, in full transparency, uh, all of my children are from Burkina Faso. So when when we talk about saving kids' lives from malnutrition in Burkina Faso, it takes on an especially personal tone. But, you know, meeting with the Minister of Health, you know, his incredible commitment to doing everything possible, even in a setting where the country is beset with a whole compounding series of crises to do even more to address the causes of mortality, including nutrition. So we, we do have often that that leadership that's committed to the highest levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's also somebody who has come up through the system, a two technocrat who has dedicated his life to these issues. But we need we need more people that this isn't a non-negotiable
1: uh because we mm-hmm. absolutely can't do it. Yes, I mean, I, I, I think that pretty much resonates with all three of us. I'm sure uh, Sean that uh, the, the biggest challenge is the political commitment and the, the, the need um, to act politically or you know, malnutrition is a, a, is something that happens in uh, out of sight. Um, and is non-threatening, I guess, to put it bluntly, to the rich and powerful, or less threatening than an HIV pandemic. Or
0: um, even
2: you know, sitting yes. here, sitting here in Africa, for example, the residents that malaria programs get, because anybody in Africa is at risk of dying malaria. I've, you know, I personally have certainly had more life-threatening experiences with malaria than I have with malnutrition. Right. So mm. they, everyone is immediately concerned, and. You know, just to build on that point, um, I was at the Nutrition Forum of the Economic Community of West African States back in April, uh, actually held here in Abuja. And it was interesting during that. I mean, to me, it's a wonderful forum because it's really almost a family reunion of nutrition actors across the 15 countries that make up ECOWAS, uh, you know, a big community of practice. And one of the participants, after a presentation of sort of the overview of the Current state of affairs on nutrition in the region asked, you know, well, with all these different nutrition actions, why have we not seen more progress? And I couldn't help but intervene to say, we've seen the progress we've invested in, to be clear, right? It aside, I mean, there have been a few things that I've shared that there has been sustained investment and truly at true scale. I would say it's iodization of salt and vitamin A supplementation, but we still have not made that leap. In the levels of funding that other sectors, for example, HIV, tuberculosis, vaccinations have made, that will be truly transformational. So I think we should not berate ourselves in terms of a technical community too much. That we've not not seen more progress because we've never we've not truly really had the rocket fuel necessary to drive that level of progress.
0: So interesting. And yep. uh, Sean, I'm sitting here listening. Can I jump in, Jeremy? Yep. Of course. Yeah. Uh, and slightly steal the next question if I may because I think it does bring us quite neatly to that to get your perspective Sean on what we call this global nutrition architecture for our listeners who might not all know what that means all the different mechanisms and initiatives and organizations that make up what we call the architecture and interestingly Chris who I'll asked to jump in in a moment, has just finished a piece of work, if you like, slightly mapping out and taking a look at the global architecture in recent months. Before Chris jumps in on that, can I just ask you, Sean, given what you've just said about the transformational powers of these highly invested, highly visible initiatives, be they to eradicate HIV, TB, uh, malaria to roll out vaccines, etc., and indeed huge investments in the COVID response that we saw as well. What's it going to take? Given we have a global architecture, given we have we don't have leadership, but we do have a plethora of global actors with resources, with time, with staff sitting in Geneva, sitting in New York, sitting in Washington, so so many places. Do you have any thoughts about how we shift that dial? Because I remember, if I may just say, I remember a conversation with a certain David the Barrow who I worked with for many years, years ago. And I asked him, why don't we have a global fund for this thing called malnutrition? Why are we not sticking our necks out? And this was in the early days of the formation of the scaling up nutrition. Some people refer to it as sun movement to really drive up, to see real political will through a much, much bigger investment with all that goes with that. It's not just money, but it is significantly also that. And I think it was discussed, Sean, you may know more about that because you've sat in some of those positions more than I. But is that what it's going to take to to see the change that you've just been describing, to get us to where these other actors are and we're just not in the nutrition community?
2: uh to me that's a pretty fundamental question um, and let me i'm i'm not going to totally punt on it but i'm i'm going to walk you through my understanding of the evolution of the global nutrition architecture my personal high points and low points mm-hmm. <laughs> before i build up to trying to even pretend to respond to that question so i do think that the 2008 lancet series was an incredible milestone because it drove a technical consensus that we probably had not had for a long time. It drove a consensus on concentrating on that thousand-day window for moms and kids between uh, conception through the child's second birthday. Uh, there also was that political economy analysis which basically said the global nutrition system is broken to the extent it existed, and it was a real slap in the face. And I did, I think, that launched a level of energy with creating the scaling up. So, first of all, the World Bank put out what will it cost? So, okay, sort of rising to that challenge, well, of these things that have been proven to have impact, what would it cost to scale them up? A movement that was dedicated to scaling up nutrition actions, uh, the first ever, true uh event to try to mobilize more funding for the first uh nutrition for growth conference in london so i think we're on this certain trajectory and along that trajectory i personally was getting quite energized i think from 2013 on there have been ups and downs i think that there has been perhaps more fragmentation than is healthy. Uh, there's been, there seems to be, you know, one of the challenges I think we in nutrition have. And as soon as we try to hone in on a few things to do well at scale, we get an allergic reaction. It's like, oh, you can't just do this. And you need to do this and, this and this and this and this and this, which is really not a recipe for progress at scale. And, you know, you look and get a parallel of like malaria. Uh, a focus on bed nets, inter residual spraying, and uh, and detection and treatment of malaria. I think we've we've had a resistance often of saying, okay, yes, we want multi-sectoral, but crisply define what you know a few things each sector should do at scale and hold the accountability. So I think we've been. And within that, I often find we have been more focused on process than outcomes and outcomes for the people we serve. Mm. Uh, I was marked by one visit when I was on the Executive Committee of the Scaling Nutrition Movement, a visit to a country that was a member. And I, I won't name names, but this country had exclusive breastfeeding rates of less than 1%. I had not realized that they could be that low. In the capital city, global acute malnutrition rates of over 12% in the capital city. And we were being presented with the Parliamentary Network for Scaling Up Nutrition, the Journalist Network for Scaling Up Nutrition, the uh, Donor Network for Scaling Up Nutrition, the Civil Society Network, et cetera, et cetera. And, like enormous amounts of Meetings and networking in the capital city. But to me, it was impossible to understand a line of sight from how is this actually translating into changes for these kids who are dying of malnutrition, all of which could be prevented with a few a huge amount, which could be prevented for a few simple actions. In that origin story, and I was not in the front lines of it, but having Having been involved with colleagues, including colleagues who were then at the Gates Foundation in those donor discussions, I think my overall takeaway from that period of time, that critical juncture of the creation of the movement and moving into nutrition for growth, is that there had been so many new funds set up, including the Global Fund. On the donor side, there was a sense of, yes, more money for nutrition, but not a new funding mechanism. Uh, was that a strategic error or not? I and you know it sort of depends what time of the day it is and which which side of the bed I get out. If that was one, was that a fundamental error not to drive for a global financing mechanism or not? I am increasingly well as of today in my is that I actually think there's a case of not to displace to, to catalyze other action. Then to cut to the chase, I think what I think the global nutrition architecture has failed to do is really deliver the resources at the level that it truly is needed. And I think it's a more acute need now, even than when the scale nutrition movement was founded, because overall with all of the pressures on the fiscal space of low and middle income countries between the lingering effects of the pandemic the, the shocks of the global food price crisis, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, again, I am coming recently from Burkina Faso, where the amount of domestic resources that have to be channeled into the security sector just for sheer existence, there, the, the, the ability of that government, despite all the goodwill, to invest significantly more in nutrition is is limited. So not that we give up on domestic resources, but I think the, the glide path to get significant domestic resources from, for many of the most affected countries has got to be longer and is going to require more external resources at a time when the appetite also in traditional donor countries is, is less robust for providing assistance. So where does that leave us? I think perhaps the most, the medium term is to get concessional financing, be it from the World Bank, other development banks, much more focused on investing in nutrition as a fundamental driver of not just survival, but better human development outcomes. But to do that, I think, I do think some catalytic funding mechanisms to have to try to shape that concessional financing and have some financial incentives for both the recipient governments and the financing institutions to invest more in nutrition would be important.
0: Well, I think you did a great job given that you mm-hmm. <laughs> said, well, I'm not sure I'm going to get round to answering it, but I think you did. And, but perhaps what would be good now, Chris, do you want to respond to that given you've had your head immersed in looking at the global architecture in recent months?
3: So many questions, uh, Sean, and so little time we have. Again, the one main question that is in my head is around the leadership that is needed. You talked about how the architecture, the nutrition architecture, has perhaps become more fragmented uh, in recent years. What do you consider to be the characteristics, the qualities and the ways of working that senior leaders within the nutrition community, and there's, there's various within UN agencies, within the Sun movement, within the global nutrition reports, etc. But what do you see as the characteristics and qualities of leadership that you think are needed to bring the nutrition community more together, collaborating more as we set out to achieve, more focused on countries and delivering results and outcomes at country level, as you say? Talk to us about the qualities of leadership that you see as being necessary.
2: I think any leadership in this field needs to start with leading with the heart. At the end of the day, if all of us wake up every day to understand the devastation that's created for kids and their families when there is not good nutrition, I think that level of authentic servant leadership is what's most fundamental. and can really infuse organizations with the sense of purpose that our true accountabilities are to those people at risk of malnutrition. And that willingness to say, yes, we will do it within our own organization. And so lead by example of what your organization can do. But then also that ability to say, and beyond my organization, this is what we need to do as a collective. And it, you know, and I look, I work for an organization, all of us work for organizations. We know there is also an institutional mandate that you need to position the organization to do things and to be have a certain level of visibility. But we also are all working for organizations with missions to serve the people at risk of malnutrition. So I think that leadership also has to be able to wear two hats at once and be comfortable with that, that. Yes, we serve, or three hats, first and foremost, serving the people at risk of malnutrition. Secondly, serving our organizations. And then thirdly, serving the overall cause and willing to step up and contribute to the common good.
3: Great. That's very inspiring. I realise, Sean, we're adding questions and probing you on certain issues, perhaps unexpectedly. And I know you um, were quite keen to talk about um, innovations in the area of nutrition that you've been witness to and involved in. Um, So maybe as we come towards the end of this conversation uh, and to, well, build on your inspiring views on, on leadership, also talk about some of the innovations that you're excited about
2: yeah and you know I go back a bit to the Lancet series and and so one I'm inspired and excited about it and you know as I said on one hand absolutely convinced that the persistence of malnutrition is a political choice I'm also a nutrition geek and we see new solutions that can deliver impact at scale I get incredibly excited And if I look at just the last few years, some of the things that have come out, the the World Health Organization updated its guidelines on management of uh, acute malnutrition and edema or wasting. And I think there's this whole body of work, often called simplified protocols, that I actually think of community based management of acute malnutrition 2.0 to truly bring it closer to the community. Because despite you know, this incredible breakthrough back in, what, the mid-2000s, we still don't have the scale of early detection and treatment of kids uh, with wasting that we truly need. And so I think this body of innovations around ways to get wasting treatment earlier and closer to the communities is great. And then building on that, you know, I don't, I don't know, you all are linked to the United Kingdom. In the US, uh, you know, the standard of care for pregnancy is multivitamins. So a whole suite of essential nutrients. Well, in low and middle income countries, the standard of care is just two nutrients, iron and folic acid. But the body of evidence around what moving of comparing multiple micronutrients to just two nutrients, not surprisingly, is pretty brilliant in terms of reducing low birth weight, reducing preterm births, uh, reducing small for gestational age, uh, stillbirths, and if those moms are already anemic, it actually reduces mortality in infants in the first half half year of life by about 29%. So, here we have something as there's a huge push to improve prenatal services, We as a nutrition community have a huge contribution to make those prenatal services have even greater impact. And then the third that really gets me jumping up and down with joy are this class of uh, supplements that come out of sort of the same category of ready-to-use therapeutic foods, but they're just small quantities of lipid-based nutrient supplements Uh, And, you know, as you know, globally, again, going back to just how badly we nourish our children and how difficult it has been to get traction and increasing the diets of kids in that critical six to 23 month period when breast milk alone is not enough, but a whole body of research shows that if we can deliver these nutrients in for, you know, six months at least, that it reduces severe wasting dramatically, severe stunting, development delays, dramatic reductions in iron deficiency and anemia, and a 27% reduction in all-cause mortality in that age group. So as, you know, the world looks about the next generation of success in reducing five mortality, again, we in nutrition, we have a magic solution. But where I get frustrated is the pace of taking up Innovations and so, harkening back to HIV, you know, it's it seems that the pipeline between if there's a new formulation to getting it actually at scale is it's really rapid, and I think unfortunately in nutrition we tend to be a bit lethargic. Uh, take a case in point of some of this work on, you know, multiple micronutrient supplements instead of iron folic acid. It's been going on for almost two decades, and we still don't have. Well, there's been a little bit of progress. Uh, we don't still have clear directives from World Health Organization to make this change. So, I'm both excited and frustrated. And this is where, again, I think we need more drivers to say, now I'm talking more about technical solutions, but we also have enormouses. Well, actually, I take that back because a lot of the solutions we talked about, about wasting treatment, are more about how do you organize services, right? So, they're more delivery models. But there's just this whole treasure trove of innovations, both on the technical side, like I've talked about, but also the delivery side of innovation models that I think, again, I posit, we are poised to go to scale in a way that we were not back in uh, 2010, that if we had the resources, we could really show dramatic improvements in a relatively short period of time
0: so interesting Sean and it's so lovely to hear your enthusiasm because I don't need to ask the final question which is how are you going (laughs) to sustain your um, optimism because I can hear it Uh, I don't think your optimism has waned it's so great that you don't come across as at all cynical really I mean yes a realist about what we need to do better at but it's great that after all these years of working in the way that you have and, and in your capacity, uh, that you still have so much enthusiasm and commitment whilst being very real about what it's going to take. But I think for us, definitely this frustration with how slow everything is. As you say, a lot of these innovations, you know, they've been around a while. I mean, Jeremy and I have worked a lot within so-called community management of acute malnutrition sort of way, way, way back when it first arrived. And yet coverage of treatment, effective treatment, is still so, so low. And I do think it speaks also a lot to the architectural, the fragmentation issue where you have a condition, wasting in this case very often, Occasionally, it's oedematous malnutrition divided between different organizations. You don't see that with malaria. You don't see it with HIV or other conditions, respiratory infections. But with malnutrition, severe wasting, certainly uh, you see this division between different organizations about who looks after which bit of this malnourished child, which I do think impedes progress. But maybe that's another discussion. to me,
2: it's uh, this false dichotomy of, yeah,
0: absolutely. Like, when
2: we get into this discussion, oh, do we do more prevention or more treatment? It's like, yeah. yes. In malaria, we don't say, do we prevent malaria? Do we treat malaria? Yeah. We need to move towards this continuum of services that have to be delivered, and they're yeah. all life-saving. Of course, the more we deliver them, the less there will be the need for treatment, but we cannot. I mean, it's, it's an artificial divide. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Artificial-
2: I, I, I did want to close. I did want to close with a quote or maybe even Correct. go
0: ahead. That
2: one, be- one that I came across relatively recently because I was again, because Helen Keller has been involved in vitamin A deficiency for a very long time, starting back in the 1970s, because it was the single largest cause of childhood blindness in that time. And that's actually how our organization, which started off as an eye health organization, got involved in nutrition. And one of the incredible gurus of nutrition of the day was Dr. Abraham Horowitz, who was then director general of the Pan American Health Organization. And I came across this quote that he put into one of the consultations on vitamin A deficiency. And he said, and I'm quoting here, the persistence of vitamin A deficiency anywhere in the world is cruel because it exposes mothers and children to great risks. It is immoral because it ignores basic human values, and it is unacceptable because it is preventable. And I think 30 years on, I would argue that that applies to all malnutrition, and is it even more cruel, immoral, and unacceptable? Mm. That malnutrition persists because we have three decades more knowledge of the impacts and how to solve it,
0: yeah, exactly. And your second quote?
2: Well, obviously, I have to quote Helen Keller because uh, we we can we can focus on how grim and difficult it is. And Helen Keller quoted said, although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of the overcoming of it. And so I just think it's a great privilege to be in a situation where we can work hand in hand with so many partners across the globe who are focused on the overcoming of the suffering of malnutrition.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sean. I think that's a brilliant way to end with the words of Helen Keller, um, who uh, I don't know much about. So maybe when I next see you, you could tell me more about this amazing woman. Thank you so much for your time, for all the thoughts that you shared with our listeners. And well, we look forward to seeing you again at some in some country, region, global gathering, whatever it might be. And wish you all the very best. Thank you, Sean.